The Dickheads are presented in color. Hey, Dickheads! Like a pink laser beam of truth beaming from Cincinnati, Ohio, and San Diego, California to your brain hole. I am your single host today. It's just me, one dickhead. Uh, but this is a bonus episode to go with our coverage for the Divine Invasion. And I have a special guest here to talk about um, PKD and the Kabbalah because that is an issue that comes up quite a bit in the Divine Invasion. And it's something I didn't really know much about. Everyone knows the religious stuff with PKD is is not my biggest strength. That being said, I want to learn about it. I want to know about it. And our guest today, um, Aaron, and how does your last name pronounce? Verity? That's right. Verity. Yeah. Aaron was recommended to us by a friend of the show, David Gill, who uh, as soon as I said I was working on the notes for the Divine Invasion episode, he said, I know somebody you should have on. <laughs> so Aaron's here today. Aaron, tell us how you got interested in PKD, how you discovered his work. Um, you know, how did you start reading uh, Philip K. Dick? My eighth grade English teacher handed me, um, sometime before I finished elementary school, she handed me a, a, a huge cardboard box filled with her late husband's science fiction paperback collection. And among those was um, maybe five or six of Philip K. Dick's books. And I think also um, the Blade Runner reprint, or the Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep, retitled as Blade Runner. And um, that just sat around on my bookshelf for, for a few years. And then, I don't know, it probably was um, while I was in college, I read through it. Um, I had seen the film, and I said, oh, you know, I, I want to read the book. And I read it, and it was quite different. And, Just a little bit, yeah. But a and, lot of us, that was our first PKD novel, was that edition of uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, right? And it, it made me want to read more. I mean, for me, what struck was this thing about animals being... Um, in put in a, a, a dangerous situation and that being a test for one's empathy and this like whole empathy test um, and that like a, a non-human might express empathy more than a human being that just that just blew my mind and I wanted I wanted more of that and I found it so I, I was hooked right and so um, I, I, now it's okay if you haven't but do you because not everyone has read everything. Uh, you know, about what percentage do you think you've read of, of PKD, or have you read it all? I'm nowhere close. I, I mean, that's fine. I didn't want to sound like I was shaming. That's, that's that's. I would like. There's several I haven't read yet because I'm reading them in order for the podcast. So. Yeah, I kind of um. I'm waiting for like the definitive. Which books to read in what order? Um, and like, maybe that's like a two column chart, like in what order for the, for the paracosm for his in universe books, like to read in uh -huh. order and, and what books to read, like that makes sense chronologically from, from a scholar's perspective. 
Yeah, um, Cliff Jones just did that. He did like um, an article, like kind of proposing a mega novel, like uh, with a with the timeline. Um, I personally, you know, we we in the podcast did it um, in publication order, and I was pretty happy with that. Although when you do it that way, um, I found that Ubik is less impressive than when it's one you just kind of discover on its own. Do you have any personal favorites? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, it's uh, It's got to be Martian Time Slip. And then um, for the two short stories, it's um, um, The Black Box and it's a companion short story. Um, which it's the name of that 19th century hymn. Uh, it's in Harlan Ellison's uh, Im- Im- Impossible... What, what is it? I can see the cover of it. Um, something of our fathers. Oh, faith of our fathers. Oh, it's faith from dangerous fathers. visions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Faith of our fathers, I believe it is. But I know what you're talking about from uh, dangerous visions. If I got the title wrong, uh, you know, everyone can call me a poser later. Uh, yeah, those those are good ones. Um, Martian time slip was a controversial one. I was the the one who is the biggest fan of it on, on our show, but I know uh, author Brian Evanson agrees with you that Martian Time Slip is up there. So, all right, so you're a Martian Time Slip fan. I got it. And uh, Do Androids got you going uh, much like uh, the rest of us. So, all right, so how did your interest in PKD and the Kabbalah happen? You wrote this paper for, the, it was for the Fullerton Conference, right? And this was before my Dick scholarship. So like I wasn't, uh, that's why I wasn't there yet. Um, But tell me about how this paper happened. Yeah. um, Or am I skipping a step? (laughs) No, I'm just wondering, I'm thinking back about like when I started getting some sense that Jews and Judaism was a topic that, Philip K. Dick was, was, was animating him. Um, I didn't know anything about. Yeah, especially I, I, Martian time slip too, because with the kibbutz and the Israel oh, right. having a major settlement on Mars and all that too. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think probably it's, it, it had to be in um, Man in the High Castle um, because Frank Frink's character, it it wasn't such like a deep character, but it, it really expressed a certain kind of like alternate universe American Jewish fellow who was like fairly well assimilated and acculturated and yet still very you know oppressed and his identity was coming through that. And that in my experience, you know, that sounded a lot like Philip K. Dick had talk to friends of his who were Jewish and whose identity wasn't maybe so rooted in a religious Judaism, but it was very well defined by their American experience. And so he seemed to be like, that seemed to be something he was uh, thinking about. And then I think when I came to Vallis, I started getting like this other this other sense. I mean, there was already this thing with animals that was 
he was really thoughtful about animals. And for me, like a very important part of like my religious Jewish identity came when I learned when I was very young about the mitzvot or like the rabbinic Jewish commandments concerning the treatments of animals. Um, and it was like a, it was a connection we had. And then I found out in reading his, um, his philosophical essay collection that this was more deeply rooted in something he had read. Uh, so things developed a little pieces here and there. And I, I just wondered like, who's written on this? Like, where is this, where's this described? And I really wasn't coming up with anything. Um, and I still hadn't followed in the footsteps of other people who had really tried to understand his his like deep investigations into esoteric Christianity um, and Gnosticism, let alone Judaism. I mean, he was all over he was all over the place between the I Ching and all sorts of things. So who knows where to start? He's a boon for any scholar of religion, I think. Well, totally, because from my understanding, where where a lot of it, the exegesis looks like gobbledygook to a lot of us who are not big time religious scholars. But when when experts on the Essenes or Kabbalah or whatever, like they they look at this and they're super impressed, whereas. You know, it's like all stuff that goes over most of our heads. So I think he was operating on a level of knowledge of these things that was pretty intense. And if you think about it, the last, you know, I don't know, eight years of his life, he just spent so much time thinking about all that stuff. Me personally, uh, I should just for for my like I my family, my father was Jewish and very, uh, very religious uh, Jewish but because my mother wasn't and because of a lot of drama that went on in my family when he married my mother in the early 60s, this was a big, you know, he was kicked out of the family and everything for a while. Uh, it wasn't until his children were born that, you know, the family kind of got over that. But because of that, he did not want to raise, he and my mother had decided they weren't going to raise us with religion. So even when my mother passed away and he got very deep into Judaism, he didn't want to put it on us. So it's funny because I have some cultural connections to Judaism, but there was a degree that my father like kind of wanted to keep me away from it. So I have more than passing knowledge of Judaism, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not... I'm obviously not a I'm a, I'm secular Jewish culturally, I guess I should say. That being said, it, I find it really interesting because Phil, I don't think he knew a lot of Jewish people, especially living part of the time in either in Berkeley or rural California. He might have known more in Berkeley, but it seems to be that in these last couple of years living in conservative Orange County is where he really started studying these issues. Right. So I'm sorry, that's a lot of words. Just giving you my well, background. Um, I don't want to pass this question back over to the biographers. I, I, I wish I could speak more about this. It definitely, it would be, it would be better if I had, you know, a ready answer, but I think he knew plenty. 
Um, and he had plenty of close friends. And I'm not just talking about fellow science fiction authors, close colleagues, you know. That's true. Avram Davidson was very Jewish. But too. also, yeah. I mean, also professionally, there is there are his editors. Um, and his, I'm sorry, his agent. Um, and uh, I mean, this this thing that I wrote about at the end of the paper is kind of like an appendix where I, I speculate that Frank Frink is based on a real person. Um, oh, uh, yeah, we'll Richard get into Richard Rubenstein. Who uh, we didn't know personally, but who he was sort of like, as the new husband, he was like filling his place. And he was also acquiring Richard Rubenstein's library also. So there is, um, so he was coming into a very intimate space inhabited by this very melancholy Jewish man who post-Holocaust took his life. Um, uh, you know, a, a very, and I don't know enough about Richard Rubenstein to say, oh, he was a sensitive poet. Um, but, you know, he was, he is part of this generation that, um, were survivors. They were survivors in a community who had to deal with learning just how, just the depth of what it meant to be uh, a surviving Jew in a world that one third of the entire global population of Jews had been exterminated. Right. And we should explain who, for listeners who don't know who Richard Rubenstein is, he was um, Anne, uh, Phil's third wife's uh, first husband who died uh, kind of in a weird um, he got miss he got a bad prescription and and um, yeah and he was part he was from a wealthy family and he who had basically bought the house that Phil ended up living in and um, Ann and Richard moved out to Northern California and then he passed away shortly after that. And then, uh, so Phil kind of stepped into his life a little bit, like you're saying, by um, uh, when he left uh, Cleo for for Anne. And um, so, if people want to get more details on that relationship, a good place is Anne Dick's um, "The Search for Philip K. Dick," which uh, one of the reasons why this I just read that book a month ago, so it's fresh in my head. But um, but yeah, I think you're right on that. I stand corrected because you're right. He did work with a, with a, with a lot of, well, for example, Don Wolheim. Well, he was a secular Jew, um, wasn't very religious at all, but was also raised in the tradition. Um, Judith Merrill is another uh, secular Jew who was raised Jewish, who he had uh, written letters with. So, you know, there were, there, they were definitely out there. So I, I, I guess I should, I should, uh, correct myself on that. But, uh, there's also his, his girlfriend in the sixties after Ann Dick. Um, oh, man. um and, uh, she, and she was, you know, she was a religious Jew. Um, she Ron passed, Dan. she was at, yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, Avram Davidson, of course, who was her husband, um, was also friends of his. So, um, and like, even though we talk about Jews who are secular versus religious, 
um, or so-called cultural Jews versus secular, it's important to know, like, even though somebody might not have been religious, they could have been very culturally fluent or even like fluent in Yiddish or something. Um, so their degree of being able to discuss with him things that um, he would have wanted an interlocutor um, is, I think is an open question. I, it's an open question for me, like what he could have talked about with say Norman Spinrad or Avram Davidson and what he wasn't able to, or how, who he had to search, who he needed to search for in order to talk about things that he wouldn't have been able to find answers for um, in the 1970s when he was more focused on. Right. In the 60s, it is true because we had um, Don Wolheim, his editor, his editor at Ace Books, we had his daughter on the podcast, and, you know, she pointed out that. You know, he was very, he was not very religious at all, you know, but he, you know, was raised in a very Jewish household and like the Jewish cultural identity was very important to him, uh, for example, you know, so it's, and I think that that's, that's true of of several of the the well-known Jewish science fiction writers in that era. So, yeah, that's a kind of really important nuance of identity though we should probably talk about uh, when we're talking about Jewish identity or probably, and this I'm sure follows for other kinds of um, religio ethnic identities. Um, if that nuance is lost, it, it can, it can be really, people miss out on a lot that's going on. Exactly. Yeah. So let's get into uh, some of the aspects of your paper. Um, I, I thought one thing that you talked about that's that's really interesting is um, when you talked about the German translation of Ubik, which is really interesting because it gets into like kind of what um, uh, Phil's concept of of God is itself, um, because the German translation of of Ubik is really interesting. Um, it is I am the brand name, right? Is the direct translation that they used. So tell me what you were what you were thinking about there. Uh, should we read the the little quote that I I took out? Sure, absolutely. Okay. And hi, cat. Um, hi, Henry. Hey, buddy. Um, okay, so this is PKD telling the story about the German translation of Ubik. He writes. He did all right until he got to the sentence, I am the word. That puzzled him. What can the author mean by that? He must have asked himself, obviously, never having come across the Logos doctrine. So he did as good a job of translation as possible. In the German edition, the absolute entity that made the suns, made the world, created the lives and the places they inhabit, says of itself, I am the brand's name. Had he translated the gospel according to St. John, I suppose it would have come out as, when all things began, the brand's name already was. The brand's name dwelt with God. And what God was, the brand's name was. And here the brand name is is 
a translation of this amazingly important theological term, logos, which literally means the word. Right. Form, and maybe on its on its basis means a decree, a divine decree. But in the particular um, conception of early Judaism, um, decrees are passed over by numinous entities, angelic powers or messengers. And um, so a decree has a kind of life force of its own. And um, what exactly was this logos by which um, uh, John was speaking um, becomes a, a, a really important pivot for, for Christian thinkers um, and also for early rabbinic Jewish thinkers. Um, they're not, you know, they're in the same thought world. You know, they're, maybe they're in different ballparks already, but they're, they're in the same thought world. I'll say, arguably. Right. Well, and so what's interesting is because, like, he's trying to, you know, it's funny because I was thinking that the German translator is also trying to get into the concept of the book as much as just, like, the idea of what does it mean to be the creator of all things, you know. But I don't know. For me, that's what I took from it is is that the German translator was trying to go with the concept of the book a little bit. But what I think is what's interesting about what you're saying is, is that it relates so much to like this higher religious thinking that Phil was kind of going for much later, actually, you know, because Ubik was written in the late 60s, right? Yeah. I mean, I think this is still before his February 1974 experience. So in my mind, it's kind of still early, you know, like, I guess I separate Dick into the b before and after. And before and after the pink beam, right? Yeah. And Logos is just such a seminal idea for, for Christians. It's not like a, a term that is like readily used by Jews, but the idea of divine decrees and being, um, and being affected by them is certainly, you know, part of the world of Jewish storytelling. If there is a, a decree that is ominous um, in the worlds of Jewish storytelling. You might be visited by the figure of Elijah the prophet to warn you. And um, if you have a, a very bad dream that seems to bode ill, it could be possibly prophetic. And um, it behooves one to gather together a group of, a group of friends to judge that dream for the good and change that decree from something that's ominous and terrible to something which is positive. So you're not actually off the mark with thinking about Logos as book. Um, Philip K. Dick, I think, could have thought that, you know, as well as thinking of Logos in, in other terms, you know, as the plasmate, as this living entity, um, because the way Logos is, is thought of, at least in the Midrashic literature, Logos has a, has a pretty strong parallel to a conception of the Torah itself or the Hebrew Bible, 
itself, which isn't just one book, but intertextually many books together. Um, the Torah takes on kind of a living spirit type thing, right? Because it's like more, I mean, correct me, I mean, I could be wrong because like I, like I said, it's passing interest. But it's like, right. because the thing is, each synagogue has its own Torah, but I think it's all part of the same tradition, right? It's supposed to be the one same word, right? Or am I wrong about that? <laughs> um. There's a teaching, there's an, a teaching in esoteric Judaism from a medieval um, Jewish teacher, a rabbi named um, Nachmanides, not to be confused with Maimonides, but Nachmanides taught that, you know, among the esoteric divine names that often have many, many letters, the Torah itself with its um, 300,000 plus letters is one long divine name and um darren aronofsky talks more about that in the movie pie um right but for logos the idea of like the torah being um something like a blueprint or something that you would look at in order to create the world um right being some kind of um early um nascent thing from which our world emerges, I think the textual basis for that is in the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, where it says, you know, I consulted Chachma, which means wisdom, and um, I, you know, I created the world. Mm -hmm. And how this is understood in the Midrashic literature is that God looked in, at the Torah and used the Torah is a blueprint for all of creation. Right. Now, in 1979, on the Legos issue, um, Phil got um, kind of defined it more, or more clearly in writing, right? He he started, he was more clear about his in, the influence of Jewish literature on him there, right? Yeah, I think... Even earlier, he points to some conversations that he had. Maybe he was still digesting them. Um, by 1978, he definitely seems to be um, in in a particular groove, deepening his deepening his knowledge. Um, maybe it. I would love to know who he was speaking with. I think that's like. One of my big unanswered questions is right. the some of the best I could do is simply look at his quotes and um, put his quotes into say Google Books and find out you know what is what was the source what was the book that he was actually reading and quoting from so I've been able to see like that he was reading Abraham Joshua Heschel and Martin Buber um, from some of the quotes he has from uh, of, say, the Sefer Yitzhirah, um, an important early book of esoteric Judaism. Well, and one wonders where he was getting these in in Orange County. Like, you know, like, um, I don't, I, I mean, some of this is like really deep cut Judaism, right? Like, I mean, like, 
And that's where you're saying it would be interesting to know who he was talking to, who was suggesting these books to him, right? Yeah, it, I mean, we it, know it some of his be. religious um, mentors like uh, Pike, but you know, I don't know who was getting him into this intense Judaism. And he was in California. Like, I'm. I think it's worth m much more specific research into exactly what was going on in California in the 60s and 70s. I and mean, there's a lot of, let's see, this first wave of English translation of esoteric Judaism that was coming out in the late 70s. Um, already um, the works of Gershom Sholem in translation were, had come out. And so it was it wasn't impossible for someone who was already autodidactic, really curious, and nobody was going to say no to Philip K. Dick. If he could access something like any curious person today, he's going to go to a library and, tr and make a request if it's not in the stacks. You know, I don't know if interlibrary loan was available, you know, for him, but he would go to you know, he was very accustomed already since the late 40s to going into his academic library and to um, looking through, say, the Encyclopedia of Philosophy or the Encyclopedia of Religion and following up footnotes to other things that might be useful. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's Well, if he... it was during the phases when he was leaving the house. <laughs> there was right. also those phases where he wasn't leaving the house. That's why I'm wondering who was bringing him the books, because especially in the late period of his life, he had periods of time where the only people who saw him outside of his house was the late night crew at the Ralphs down the street. So, you know, somebody was bringing, and that's where I think that some of these people who were characters in Vallis, right, who he turned into characters, or, or like Doris, who is his next door neighbor, who was a character in Vallis and, and Divine Invasion, you know, I'm wondering if she's finding these books for him or if she's like, hey, you know, Phil's really interested in this. I should find these books. I don't know. But it, it's it's impossible to say. But, you know, one thing... In this, Maybe this... it is possible. Maybe it's still possible. I mean, there yeah. are folks who are still around, William Cyril and, and other friends who could... who've mentioned, you know, people who are you know, now kind of hard to track. Yeah. Um, and uh, possibly they'll be hearing this podcast. And so let, let's put out an open invitation. Like, if Absolutely. you know... If um, you know the answers to these things, if please you were present, If you were present at one of these, um, you know, open-ended conversations with Philip K. Dick in the, in the late 70s, and he mentioned some of these things, or somebody was talking about one of these... Um, Absolutely. The topic yeah, we don't, of our Judaism came up. Like, who were they? Like, and and yeah. what kind of books did books did they bring with them to his house? Absolutely. Well, and that's the thing is, uh, you know, I, we don't. None of us pretend to know it all with with Phil, you know. Uh, and so, if people could fill in those gaps, that would be incredible. And this might be left field. This isn't something that was in your article, but it's something that you kind of brought up. And I'm sorry, I got a dog grum getting grumbly here. Uh, but uh, the one of the things, you know, like, listen, I've been a vegan for over 30 years. So I've got an animal connection to and animal rights is 
big and important to me. And I remember in the 90s, there was a lot of talk that there, you know, when there was a lot of things about the Essenes and translations about how, you know, there was a lot of pro-animal or things that like backed up animal rights in the Essene, in the Essene text. So I'm wondering if, you know, coming on the heels of, you know, some of the ideas that he's putting forward into Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, if some of these concepts are backed up by some of the reading he was doing in these Essene texts and how that relates to this issue. Well, that's a really great question. There's a, a scholar in Britain, um, her name is Taylor. Um, Jay, I'm blanking whether her name is Jean or Julia, and forgive me, those out there uh, who know her name well. She wrote a book on the Essenes, and um, she wrote another book on the Therapeutae, um, just bringing up all the scholarship on these people. And one of one of the conclusions she makes on her book on the Essenes is that they really weren't vegans, the Essenes, and vegetarianism wasn't their thing. I wasn't entirely convinced because even if it wasn't their thing, it certainly seems important for yeah, um, I say so. the early Christians that followed them to retroactively say they were. And why was that? And so there is a kind of, um, there's something else that I wrote about um, besides this Philip K. Dick paper, which talks about sort of like the anti-predatory um, philosophy or the anti-predatory mythos that was animating um, a lot of the storytelling and um, moralizing. It wasn't only current among the early Christians, it was also occurrence among Jews of that period, too. I mean, it certainly wasn't felt by everyone. Um, otherwise, the Jewish and Christian communities would be like the Sikhs or Hindus and would have really formalized that into their dietary practice. But as everyone who knows something about kashrut or kosher, um, the kosher dietary tradition, the concept of something being treif figuratively non-kosher is that that creature hadn't been torn apart. It hadn't been ripped apart, which is the manner in which every other animal in the world except humans can predate on other animals. Um, they, they will eat them alive. Um, but we do things, we can do things differently. So that's like sort of the limit for how we do things. And then when just for Jews in particular, then the way the animal is killed in initially, you know, for the longest time, this was a really big deal that it was circumscribed very seriously and how that animal would be killed and which animals could be killed. But um, I think it was, I think to get back to your point, yes, Essenes might not have historically been vegans or um, uniformly anti-predatory, but the people after them certainly framed them as such. And that would have been what Philip K. Dick read about them. Yeah. And I, th I think um, some of those, I, I think some of those ideas bleed into a little bit into some of the work, but 
Um, now, there's a book that Phil read that was very he was very influenced by, and I tried to put it on hold at the library. It did not get here in time for me to read it, and that's um, God in Search of Man by Abraham uh, Herschel, I believe. Heschel. Heschel. Abraham Joshua Heschel. Uh, Heschel. That's right. And um, what can you tell me about this book and its influence on, on Phil? I wish I could say more. I mean, Heschel was, he's certainly one of the most important Jewish thinkers of the 20th century in the United States. Um, so if somebody was to um, be making a short list of, of thinkers who, by the skin of his teeth, um, it's a kind of interesting phrase to use, very narrowly uh, avoided um, being killed in, by the Nazis, as as other scholars found his way to the United States thanks to um, the sanctuary at Hebrew Union College here in Cincinnati, where I am, um, made his way to JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary of America in New York, um, where he taught for years. The important thing about Heschel for a num you know, many religious Jews who um, aren't necessarily Orthodox Jews is he brought to them a lineage of Hasidic thought. Um, that's a particular uh, stream of, of Jewish pietistic thought is sometimes the word that's used, but a, a certain stream of Jewish thought, which is like very inclined to raise the level or to not not to make esoteric Judaism esoteric, but to make esoteric Judaism exoteric or public or really part of a familiar area of, of Jewish thought, a lived Jewish thought. And Abraham Joshua Eschel came from that world of Hasidic Jewish life and his conception of Torah and the symbolic world and prayer and the prayer life is full of that. And it was like extremely fresh for Jews who had come from a different stream of intellectual German jury that um, I wouldn't say was divorced from that, but maybe a bit alienated from that, was much more inclined towards um, an old school Maimonidean approach, which is um, philosophical, erudite, and um, and averse to um, a mystical approach or an openly mystical approach. Those things would tend to be either more private or um, you'd have to prove yourself through a great deal of intellectual rigor in order to for it to be a subject of your scholarship. Um, well, and I got the impression from from your from your paper that you thought that some of Phil's ideas of the Torah came directly from this God in Search of Man book. But yeah, uh, right about that or God in like. Heschel and Buber seem to be, you know, very, very important influencers for his thinking, as they would have been for many um, people who are exploring Jewish philosophy in um, the mid 
till the 20th century. I can say for myself, one of the first books that I read, it was a very slim novel when I was a teenager that I came across was Abraham Joshua Heschel's The Sabbath combined with another book called The Earth is the Lord's. And those two books like introduced me to Jewish environmental thought from somebody writing in the 1950s. So he's like, not just, he's not just a connection to like um, a pre-war, pre-Holocaust Judaism that was open to esoteric Judaism and, and the lived um, mystical Judaism, but he was also keeping with him a sort of engaged forward-thinking Judaism that was very keen on expressing um, I don't know how to say it more profoundly a, a Judaism that is keen on bringing the world into a state of um, rectification um, an acknowledgement that there's something very broken about the world and for a galactic pot healer mind this is like a world that needs to be repaired and he's speaking to a concept in Jewish mystical teaching called tikkun olam. And over the last two centuries, it became like a very potent, profound mission um, in religious Judaism for Jews to feel, be social justice oriented along the lines of seeing the world as broken and wanting to do what they can through good deeds and organizing to make it better. And Heschel lived that. He lived that by walking with Martin Luther King and being uh, and and modeling that behavior and and speaking loudly and openly about that in his life. And um, he's just a very very important person who's straddling all those um, all those places. I I think it would be worthwhile to like come do a comparison. Like in what way was Heschel Sort of like, um, how could he be compared to to Bishop Pike? Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they traveled in some of the same circles or, or knew some of the same people. Just very concerned with um, society and the improvements of the world and for its most vulnerable. Well, we're going to be uh, diving into Pike in the next book because we're doing Transmigration of Timothy Archer, of course, after this. So I'll let you know if I see anything. But uh, so here's the other thing, too. So I, I do want to say, because you, some of you might be out there wondering, like, you haven't even mentioned Divine Invasion yet. And this is a bonus for Divine Invasion. And we will get to a little bit because. But to me, it's more about the background of what Phil was thinking when he wrote Divine Invasion. It's going to inform your process when we discuss it as as a, as a book and and ideally i want people to listen to that episode before they listen to this one but that being said phil what's the importance of thomas because here's the thing is phil like straight up talked about he told people he was literally collaborating with this mythical figure thomas on the Vallis books meaning Vallis and divine invasion and probably a little bit of uh, radio free so you want to tell folks who Thomas is and and uh, and what that means for this story? Well, 
Um, Thomas comes from like uh, the Gospel of Thomas, which isn't really something which which many people who are in Christian scholars or scholars of, of Gnostic literature know about. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't know about Thomas or the Gospel of Thomas if it wasn't for Philip K. Dick. Um, so Thomas's own connection to Judaism is kind of um, I is a big question mark in my mind. Maybe, but it it becomes something significant for Philip K. Dick because he's interested in Gnostic literature, and so got the Gospel of Thomas comes into his canon. And what's significant about the story of Thomas is Jesus isn't even mentioned. Um, Thomas is the protagonist in that story, and it might be, um, it seems like a little bit more plausible to me that in the like the heady currents of um, Hellenistic, the Hellenistic world or the world of late antiquity, that the Gospel of Thomas was a like a popular religious work that was carried by not like a group of Christians that doesn't doesn't exist anymore, or maybe even non-Christians like Manichaeans. Um, you know, uh, Manichaeans were another sect you know, that spun off of Judaism in the first century, or what scholars might call early Judaism. And was ultimately like um, extinguished by repression, but there are these stories that survived in places like Persia, and um, they were translated and they became part of the lore. And you know, I'm not I'm not exactly sure I'm the best person to talk about the historical literature of Thomas. It's just a very kind of it's an odd place to talk about Judaism specifically It for the divine invasion. I mean, there are other m more specific Jewish characters in divine invasion or that like are, are speaking, are speaking to like the weirdness in there. Um, I mean, for well, one, well, there's he, this he said in a letter to Charles Platt that, for Vallis, he said, quote, I am collaborating with the spirit of a 13th century Jewish Kabbalist, Abraham Ben Samuel. Abraham yeah. 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 Okay, right. so he, That's he, not he Thomas. Vallis as a collaboration with this figure. Who is who is this figure? Is he created completely out of Phil's mind? or? No, no. I, this is another historical person. Um, I mean, I would love... I just don't want to ignore Thomas for the moment because he's really interesting. Yeah. And you have this whole thing going on um, where Philip K. Dick has history stop and it's bifurcated and like our timeline continues. And at some points with some like spirits, there's an over overlapping. And so you can have you or me sharing the same person of somebody who is Lived living in another centuries ago yeah centuries ago and and so the possibility that he's doing that with somebody like Avram Abulafia or Maimonides or this fellow Thomas um, or a 
Roman soldier who is um, subversively an early Christian, um, all these possibilities are are in the mix. Um, but he speaks about this, you know, like he says in this letter, he's channeling Avram Abu Afia and it's directing him and what he's writing about Vallis. And unlike, um, I guess other people would say they'd read that and they'd say, well, you know, Philip K. Dick has a sense of humor and you can't really take every, you know, what he's saying seriously. Right. I don't, I also don't think one should deny what he's saying. Uh, I, I think he can be like serious, but not sober to, um, to quote Hakeem Bey. He's, he's, this is a man who he's, he's plucking these names out of the air. They're, inside jokes for who for him like for he him, knows yeah. the significance of avram abulafia for well, him you know maybe I mean, he thinks for charles too like maybe he thinks charles should know who he is or in his own odd way is telling charles by the way you should find out about this avram abulafia guy he's really cool um he's sort of like you know, I knew about Avram Avulafia before he was cool. I was channeling him. Um, <laughs> before and... he was uh, all the rage. Well, and, and the thing is, is he's thinking of it the same way. Like Richard Linkletter could have said, I'm collaborating with Philip K. Dick on a movie when he was doing Scanner Darkly, right? Because in a sense he was. And so for Phil, he may have been thinking that way, like I'm collaborating and look, the, the book I'm writing right now, I could easily argue that I'm collaborating with Philip K. Dick because I'm writing so much about him um, that, well, you know, there's an argument for that. You know, when you're channeling, you're channeling somebody, you're going through their work. I think of uh, uh, my friend uh, John Shirley got to, to uh, uh, write that collection where all these different authors finished uh, uncompleted Edgar Allan Poe stories. You know, and like he took a story where Poe had stopped mid-sentence, you know, and finished it. And like, so he was collaborating with Edgar Allan Poe, technically. Well, I like that idea, actually, because um, I think when PKD name checks Avram Abulafia, the only translated material by Abulafia was a piece, a, a fragment that... Gershom Shalom had translated. I mean, it's a really important fragment at the time. I should mention why Abulafia is so significant. Um, like, he's a, a messianic figure from the 13th century. Um, he goes to the Pope at the time um, with an intention to try and turn him and change history. Um, revealing to him like what should be the Pope imprisons him and uh, this is actual this is actual history it's unbelievable Abu Lafia sentenced to death but overnight in jail the Pope dies and he's set free um, like does this happen anywhere else like for Jews in the Middle Ages such like uh, a miraculous close encounter with death um, where there is usually there is a great story 
around it. Um, for Abu Rafi, who is a controversial character, he's controversial because his um, own revelations, his declaration that he is a prophet and that he has a, a method for acquiring prophecy already puts him in a dangerous position among fellow Jews in Spain. This is before the expulsion in 1492, where such declarations um, are are kind of dangerous. Let me name check while I can also a fellow who's studying this and a Philip K. Dick, um, uh, also a passionate Philip K. Dick Go for uh, it. <laughs> enthusiast. His name is Avi Solomon, and he's busy in Israel translating works of Avram Abulafia. And he's he has a Patreon, and you can support him. And what he's translating is really important. His thesis is that Abulafia um, had gotten via Arabic um, certain really important breathing techniques uh, that were current um, from Indian philosophy. From um, these were Indian breathing techniques, and he had learned them from their Arabic translation. He had himself translated them into Hebrew. Um, Abu Lafia's writings are really incredible. His connection to Maimonides is that he interpreted Maimonides in a mystical fashion, which would have been a huge surprise to Maimonides, who was more of a rationalist, Aristotelian thinker. But Abu Lafia really starts this current among um, medieval Jewish mystics to reread the works of Maimonides, the philosopher, um, in a mystical way. And that's probably what puts him on the map for Philip K. Dick. Um, Maimonides would be really surprised, I think, to learn that a science fiction writer in the 20th century would think that he could be possessed by him. Again, Maimonides is a rationalist, right. not a mystic, but there's this huge, huge current to read. That's kind of funny to think about. Maimonides yeah. in a mystical way. Um, and that current is extremely important in medieval Jewish thought, um, that reinterpretation of Maimonides. And Abulafia is part of that. Yeah. So um, to try and reel this home. <laughs> Um, you refer to, in your article, you said the divine invasion is sort of a uh, Kabbalist, Kabbalistic allegory. Um, it's something to do also with the, like the, the, you know, I mean, we've got the cryo lab where you have like the fiddler on the roof playing and, and there's lots of little inside. <laughs> people forget, a lot of times people who are not serious dickheads forget that Phil uses humor in such brilliant ways. Can you talk about like how the divine invasion is related to Kabbalahistic thinking? Well, that's a big question. I get it. I know. It is. Can I just say that um, Fiddler on the Roof is such a cultural touchstone for so many non-Jews and Jews um, that that joke of Philip K. Dick strikes home for me in a very, very like hilarious and serious way. Because right. um, often when like I meet somebody, a stranger, um, 
that's like all they know about Judaism is from like our great cultural ambassador fiddler on the roof. Um, <laughs> but how much, how much are people really like gleaning from that? Like if I had my choice, would I choose fiddler on the roof as my cultural ambassador? Um, no, but um, Philip K. Dick is sensitive in making his joke that this is like, he would say like Fiddler on the Roof playing endlessly, you know, like what is that doing to the mind of his protagonist in this cryo sleep? To me, it points to a kind of a very superficial level of self-knowledge or Jewish yeah. identity. And that's the role that he's playing in Divine Invasion. The, the one, the character with deeper knowledge, the, um, the Virgil-like mentor of, um, what, what's his name? Herb, Herb um, Asher. Asher, yeah. Right, Herb Asher is the fellow in the cryo lab who's hearing Fiddler on the Roof endlessly. Um, this fellow, Elisha, he is the manifestation of Elijah the prophet. And he opens up in the divine invasion, this like possibility of like incarnate people manifesting these ancient spirits. So you have Elijah alive in the form of this fellow Elisha who's, who's teaching, who's there teaching um, Herb Asher, the Talmud. And you have um, Herb Asher's son, Emmanuel, who is a deity reborn in the form of a man. Where have we heard that before? And he's being taught by the manifestation of Chachma, wisdom, um, with this like a Sophia wisdom character, this, this small girl named Zima, Zina. Um, I, I just find like the interaction between Zena and Emmanuel where she's curing him of his anamnesis, this strange word that means like recovering a sacred memory, um, to be just entirely, entirely like sensitive and, um, and healing. It, it, it really just affects me profoundly when I read that portion, it's a it's a description of an intervention, of a spiritual intervention, something that Philip K. Dick, I'm sure, desired tremendously, and he right. he visualized it in his story. Well, this is the last kind of hurrah for science fiction for Phil on on a novel basis, and for for um, the story of. You know, Herb, Herb, Herb Asher, I mean, he isn't the first Jewish, yeah, kind of identify. He, he did a hero, Jewish hero in Frank Frank before, right? But, um, but Frank was Jewish on the surface, whereas Herb's story is kind of Jewish under the surface. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and, and doesn't that parallel Philip K. Dick's own exploration of Judaism before and after his his theophany? 
Very when true. he talks about when he talks about Jews or Judaism before, he's talking about it on the level of like critiques of ethno nationalism or um, or identity politics. Um, after, certainly, with the way the kibbutz are portrayed in um, Martian Time Slip, yeah, there's yes, exactly. There's and, some like. Ee. <laughs> yeah. I, and he has like a uh, um, a, a world computer that makes a, a like a kind of casual determination to simply eliminate the state of Israel from the globe. Like we're gonna nuke Israel now, and it doesn't exist anymore because it's a, a minor variable in a confrontation between the Soviet Union and France. And so the supercomputer calculates its options and it obliterates obliterates Israel. Is that that was Holy Quarrel, right? The yeah. Okay. But it yeah. also then, appears in other stories. Uh, um, I know Israel was in Water Spider too. I think. That's but, right. Yeah. So, um, which is funny because I'm usually not as strong on the short stories as I am the, the novels. But, um, well, but so so here's the thing. I think you've made a really excellent point tying it together of like the pre and post you know uh pink laser beam uh thing with phil and judaism is that you know he actually said you know in one of his final interviews i've become a something of an of an amateur student of Jew jewish scriptures yeah um do you think that if he had lived longer and i mean i think if we if he had lived longer we you know, we would have gotten more, a lot more movement in that direction. What do you think? I mean, I think he brings a great deal. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a Christian thinker. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a Christian mystic, but I am a religious Jew. And I, I feel like um, Philip K. Dick isn't a, a Jewish thinker, but he, what he writes it lands with me. It touches me, um, and so I think he. I think he could. What he wrote and what he wrote in the near the end of his life, if it has the ability to touch me, then he's talking about. He's talking about things that matter, um, things that matter to me, not just like as a human being, but things that matter within the scaffolding of my religious education, and that's that's very special. Um, it's not going to, I don't think that would connect with just about everybody on that level, you know, but that it did for me just anecdotally. Right. Well, that, and I've that, always wondered if he wouldn't like, you know, it's funny because if he hadn't forget eye in the sky for a second, but, um, I always wondered if he hadn't like been exposed to the Baha'i faith in a way because so much of his the way he was kind of learning religion at the end was he was taking bits and pieces of everything right the same like this is you know so uh, now he he wrote a kind of he wrote nastily about the Baha'i faith and eye in the sky but that was because his editor Don Wolheim was told by his bosses don't write about christianity so the original draft of eye in the sky was entirely about christianity and he had to because it was the 50s 
write it about this weird version of the Bob, right? And and so my, my thinking is, is, and this comes, me as somebody who had taken interest in the Baha'i faith for a while, I wonder if he wouldn't have seen that kind of like approach to like taking bits and pieces of everything um, if he had gone further in life. But he was definitely <laughs> obviously reading Jew- Jewish scriptures intensely during this time. And well, he informed... said something about Judaism that's kind of weird. Um, what which stru- struck me as a misunderstanding of Judaism, he wrote that um, his issue with Judaism is that it re- it repudiates the teachings of Jesus, and that's not what I think of in as Judaism. That was what Philip K. Dick at the time that he wrote that thought Judaism taught, but the Judaism that I knew, that I know, is the one that in Pirkei Avot, the teachings of the fathers, it says, who is who is um, wise. Um, Shimon ben Zoma says, the one who is wise learns from every person. And so it's not, there's not like a repudiation of the teachings of Jesus. And more so, I think, what, I think, had he known that, he would have found like a kind of deeper resolution than even that he had come to when he wrote that, I think in 1981, um, which is in the exegesis. Um, But as somebody who's purposefully, intentionally trying to unpack a revelation, what he would self-describe as a theophany, Baha'i should have appealed to him because what is remarkable about Baha'i is that there are prophets in every generation, prophecy has not been discontinued. I mean, I think there's like a danger for people to like, um, for people who are egotistical or spiritual narcissists to say, I too am a prophet and and run with that. Um, I didn't know Philip K. Dick personally, so I can't say whether he was like that. I don't get that sense from his writings, um, that he was going to be like a L. Ron Hubbard and like, you know, make his own shtick. Um, but I, I feel this is somebody who's a lot more intellectually honest and is struggling in a fairly tortured way to unpack what he had received. And that's something I, I deeply, deeply respect. I think it, it would have, it should have connected him with um, the experience of Baha'i and any other tradition that still holds that prophecy is something that every human being can access. That was something Avram Abulafia taught um, in the Middle Ages. And I don't, like, if he knew that about Avram Abulafia, I'm not surprised that um, this person who is like maybe a failed prophet, I wouldn't say a false prophet, but somebody who experienced something really profound um, that he could be respected for and not castigated or marginalized for having had his experience. Do you have a lot of experience? I don't know. Do you often suggest to Jewish science fiction fans to check out Philip K. Dick and how do you make that pitch? What a really great question. Um, 
just an hour ago, somebody was asking on like the Jewish star, the, the what is it called? Star Trek Jew posting Facebook group. They were asking about um, a story in which there's conversion to Judaism in our science fiction future. Please make recommendations. Um, and I thought of Joseph Dan's 1992 story, Jumping the Road, which appeared in Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine. Um, it's a really beautiful story. Uh, and there's a there's a book by Isidora Hablum called The Tzaddik of the Seven Wonders. And um, I think Joseph Dan also did a very famous collection, anthology of science fiction stories. There is, um, there is an article in um, that came out about 12, 15 years ago that stated that um, Jews weren't into fantasy literature, but like science fiction was like their genre. And I'm also a romantic and a believer in um, the project of people like Tolkien. Um, so it, it, it rubbed me the wrong way. I feel like, um, like Philip K. Dix talks about a speculative fiction and eschews or eschews the, the idea of a science fiction, but is more in a speculative mode. I feel like that rings really true in thinking about these genres as creating as a as a literature that creates a comparison view we the writer creates a world and we as the readers see that world and we compare it against our own and that experience of comparison that can be like radically subversive and um a political or it's apocryphal in the sense of it being revealing um or Gnostic in the sense of now we have experienced a hidden knowledge, but it's that kind of awakening to a different perspective feels like it's part of an ancient tradition of writers, revealers, prophets who are trying to, in desperate, desperately trying to give us a new perspective. The difference for Philip K. Dick is and for writers today is that you know their work is commodified um so it's not simply that they're writing for the sake of you know for some altruistic sake they're doing it for their own livelihood um but somehow philip k dick has managed to do it and also you know many of his peers and are having fun with it um i would like to know somebody say like did philip k dick actually enjoy writing you know, did he, um, was it, was it a torture, like, in unpacking his theophany? You know, did he have to take drugs to enter into the state of mind that was ex excruciating to bring yes. over his thoughts? <laughs> so that's, um, I think that that's something a lot of us can relate to, that an altered state of perception is something that causes us anxiety, not something that we are euphoric for. Um, it's something we appreciate, but it isn't something we would necessarily jump into be for recreational purposes. For uh, also for 
I did have some discussion on this podcast before about uh, Jewish science fiction writers with, of course, Lavi Tidar on the 10th anniversary of his novel Osama, very influenced by Man in the High Castle. If you have not read uh, Osama by Lavi Tidar, who is an Israeli science fiction writer. Okay, Aaron, you've been incredible uh, giving us all kinds of really intense details on on uh, Judaism and Philip K. Dick. Uh, but I know I we could, you and I could probably talk for hours on this because I'm I uh, really enjoying it. Well, if folks want to communicate with you or collaborate with you on. Uh, or, or just talk to you about these issues, uh, where can they find you? And, um, you know, is, is this something you're going to be writing about in the future? Well, you know, the paper that I gave in 2016, um, which you read, that's available right now. I guess it's been circulating for six years um, looking for comments. Um, it is a great article. I really appreciated that. Thank you. Well, that's available. And I think in the zip file I have, along with the PDF, um, there are some other really precious, um, there's some MP3s of his interview with um, the fellow you mentioned uh, earlier. John Borstrom? Or, sorry. The there was, actually, there were two different interviews. There was that and there was also Boonstra. the... Boonstra. Um, yeah, Boonstra. Um, so that's that's good, and if if you provide the link to that, that's terrific. Um, of course, people are welcome to find me. I have a a blog on the internet for like twenty years now because I'm now I'm an internet old timer, and people can you know reach out to me through the contact form on my website, um, which is uh, aharon a h a r o n dot varady dot net slash omphalos, O-M-P-H-A-L-O-S. Um, I guess you might have that available for them in the description for this. Yeah, yeah, we'll put that in the show notes too, for sure. So. Yeah, and if like you do a Google for me, I'm sure you'll find um, you'll find more. But that's where the contact form is. That's that's important if you wanted to connect. Okay. Anything? Any last comments you want to make on uh, Philip K. Dick and uh, Jewish thinking? Well, scriptures, divine invasion. I, I did select one thing to share. Um, awesome. I, in my other world, in my other life that I, I work on, I work on um, Jewish prayer literature, and this prayer from 1969 at the inauguration day for Richard M. Nixon really struck me when I first heard it. And I think it'll strike you, Philip K. Dick enthusiasts. Um, so here it is, it's not terribly long. This is uh, Edgar F. Magnin, Rabbi Edgar F. Magnin speaking. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the darkness was upon the face of the deep God said, let there be light, and there was light. This was not the light of the sun nor the moon. It was the Shrina, the Logos, the Word, the divine presence that was to reflect itself upon the human mind and soul. This is the light that brought man out of the cave 
and endowed him with intelligence, morality, the yearning for freedom the inspired, that inspired the prophets and sages of old and through all ages. This is the American ideal, born at the time of creation itself, cherished by the founding fathers who were practical idealists. They knew history well. They warned against the dangers of ignorance, stupidity, apathy, selfishness, immorality, and dissension within our, our borders and between nations. They knew full well that patience, courage, goodwill, and cooperation were preferable to hysteria and emotionalism, and that age-old problems and complex problems cannot be solved with instant answers and simple answers. They knew that there is no substitute in the world for common sense. The night is long and is still, and it is still dark as far as civilization goes. We will never be perfect, for man is not perfect, but we are on the way. Our country is still great, and it will be greater with hope in our hearts and work and rededication there are a few faint streaks of pink in the sky. We await the dawn. Almighty God, bless our country and him who will be our leader and our guide in the coming years. Our Father's God, to the author of liberty, to thee we sing. Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might, great God, our King. On Yay. that note, folks, uh, ride the beam. Stay paranoid. <laughs>